This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 6, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Not everything uttered by a professional is professional speech, and at any rate, there is no such distinct category of speech that would afford that speech less First Amendment protection. That comes from the Supreme Court in the case of the National Institute of Family Life Advocates, and there would be regulators in the state of California. Megan DeWitt is a legal associate at the Cato Institute who worked on Cato's brief in the case we spoke last week. Uh, The NIFLA case is about a challenge to the California Reproductive Fact Act, which required two different types of disclosures from crisis pregnancy centers, Uh, one from licensed centers, explaining where women could receive free or low-cost contraceptive and abortion services, and another from unlicensed centers that simply required that they display in large font a message saying that they were not a licensed medical center. What are the speech implications here? They're huge. Um, We all thought that this could have tremendous implications for First Amendment law before the court's decision came out. And essentially, that decision just affirmed that, indeed, this one is pretty far-reaching. It involves scrutiny levels, how strictly, you know, any particular government action has to be examined. It involved whether or not, quote-unquote, professional speech is a particular type of speech doctrine. And it involved um, an old case called Zodderer, which is the foundation for a lot of these compelled disclosures that one sees all over the place tied to products and services. Now, with respect to uh, these crisis pregnancy centers, uh, the the same kinds of restrictions are applied to uh, centers that perform abortions, which is... Uh, you have to you have to present this information. You have to give the young lady this information. You have to uh, make sure that you alert this person to this fact. You must say to this woman th- these things, putting up as many hurdles as possible for either an abortion clinic or a crisis pregnancy center to actually present, to actually just do what it is that they do. Um, well, in this case, the two types of organizations or centers or clinics are actually not treated the same. That's true if you look at a patchwork of state laws. Some lo- um, some states that would be considered a little more right-leaning have extensive disclosure requirements for physicians who are going to perform abortion procedures. Um, that's not the case in California. And this law in particular actually applies only to the crisis pregnancy centers because there is an extensive list of exemptions for clinics. Um, So essentially, if you are a clinic that participates in the Medi-Cal program, which is the program that provides those low-cost contraceptive and abortion services, then you're exempt from having to disclose that information. Right. But depending on the political bend of the state... One of one kind of center would likely be facing a lot of, you know, asymmetric regulation. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, what are the broader implications for, you know, calling out the the notion that there is no such animal as professional speech? That speech uttered by a professional uh, does not carry some sport cannot carry some sort of special sanction. Well, essentially, the the Supreme Court has refused to ever acknowledge a separate category of speech called professional speech. However, that has not stopped many district and appellate circuit courts from 
kind of making this up and applying it in a way that they determined was sensible because typically courts applying what they call professional speech would use an intermediate level of scrutiny, meaning not deferential to the government um, and not super difficult to overcome like strict scrutiny. Um, but Justice Thomas in his decision explained, not only has the Supreme Court never recognized this category, but we have said repeatedly, we will not carve out additional areas and designate them for lesser constitutional protection. In this case, there was no reason to do so. As he also pointed out, it's perfectly appropriate to regulate professional conduct in a way that incidentally burdens speech, which is what something like the informed consent provisions at issue in Planned Parenthood versus Casey was determined to be. It regulated professional conduct. There was an incidental burden on speech because particular types of information had to be either delivered or made available when a physician was obtaining informed consent. Um, but that didn't regulate the physician's speech as speech. It regulated conduct. However, in this situation, Justice Thomas says this is clearly a regulation of speech as speech, not of professional conduct. To the extent that the court is taking this uh, extra step of saying, no, we're not going to carve out any type of exemption for professional speech here and thus affording it a lower level of constitutional protection, what implications does that have for areas of regulation of professions more broadly? Um, it has potentially huge implications. We're not sure exactly where that would stop yet. I'm sure that the litigation is just now beginning to determine several of those things. But um, that question brings up exactly what Breyer spent a lot of time addressing in his dissent, which is that he accuses the majority of opening most basic regulations that have been, as he called them, constitutionally sound um, since the New Deal um, into question. And he's right to do that because theoretically, if speech is being regulated by compelled disclosures or restrictions rather than professional conduct in a licensing environment, then then those those restrictions, regulations uh, do have the potential to, to be found to be fatally flawed at this point. It would take a while for any of them to get back up to the Supreme Court. And it's unlikely that appellate circuit courts will begin striking a lot of them down until they have further confirmation from the Supreme Court that that would be acceptable behavior. But as Justice Thomas said, while it's sometimes difficult to find a line between professional conduct and professional speech, the court has consistently drawn that line and are, you know, they're comfortable continuing to do it. So that, I think, is where the play is going to be, is figuring out the exact contours between conduct and speech. Which regulations of professionals, you know, are those regulations of conduct that only incidentally burden speech, and which ones are regulating speech as speech? All right. So uh, Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence here. Was there anything particularly notable in that concurrence? Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, he said that this law was a hallmark of an authoritarian regime that attempted to control speech. Um, his concurrence actually seems to have upset people a lot more, or maybe it was just easier to fixate on because it's a, a short and very direct concurrence. But he pointed out that in addition to being a content-based regulation, which was the basis of Justice Thomas's majority opinion, the law is also clearly viewpoint um, discriminatory and singles out 
specifically pro-life centers to bear the burden of conveying the government's message and said, yeah, we know from from history that this is the mark of authoritarianism or a totalitarian regime. All right. So um, that concurrence sort of indicated to some people that, well, Justice Kennedy, he is on his way out the door and come to find out that, yes, in fact, he is on his way out the door. This was a case that was about uh, the First Amendment. So what do you think, just generally, I'm sure you've read many of uh, Kennedy's opinions on topics related to speech. What is his legacy with regard to uh, the freedom of speech in America? Oh, I think that he will be held and considered as a venerated champion of free speech for a long, long time. Um, he's consistently been supportive of free speech rights, even even in situations um, that some might consider hairy. Everyone wondered how he would end up voting in Masterpiece because he authored the Obergefell decision, but he has been a staunch, staunch First Amendment supporter. Um, so his, his vote wasn't a surprise there, but I think examples like that of him you know, articulating Dignity rights and the importance of treating people a certain way, but saying, however, the First Amendment is still, you know, sacrosanct and it still requires certain protections um, for people's conscience and their ability to decide what to say for themselves or not. So, yeah, I think he will be appreciated and respected as a champion of speech rights for a long time. Megan DeWitt is a legal associate at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.